Thank you for listening to our church podcast where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. Most of the sermons will be preached by our founding pastor, John Cole. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m. for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Today we're starting with a new series and we're going into the book of Philippians. I'm looking forward to this, been looking forward to getting into this book of the Bible where we have a beautiful relationship between Apostle Paul and those with him and this church in Philippi. And we're going to start today by looking at just these first two verses and take time at uh, different words inside of these verses and consider the meaning of them and the context of them and help create a backdrop for the book itself as we get into it. And I've titled the message today, Joy in Serving Jesus. Joy in Serving Jesus. Before I get into all of it, I remember when I preached through the book of Acts with you back in 2018, going into 2019, uh, I remember getting to Acts 20, which is one of the times when Paul spent time with the people here in Philippi. Not the first time. The first time was in Acts 16. But in Acts 20 was one of the times he was passing through. And I don't know if you remember the message. It was a while ago. But it was one that laid an impression upon me as I studied the passage in Acts 20. And the overwhelming thought I had as I read in Acts 20 over and over again was all these names of people and names of places where Paul had gone and he would talk about and write about and write to because he had a relationship with every single one of them. And as he traveled, the, the question was, would I? Would I do what Paul did? And I asked nine questions in that sermon in Acts 20 about would I do this? Would I do this? And you can find it on our website if you were to go through and, and look through the sermons and just look for would I. And I asked, would I do these things that Paul did as he traveled from place to place and loved these people? And we looked at the blessing that comes from Uh, ministering to so many people, the joy in serving Jesus, where you have so many different people that you get to love and develop relationships with. And that's what Paul did. And that was the overwhelming emphasis over a year ago as we looked into that text. This book of the Bible, you see a glimpse of that with one group of people. And it's the Church of Philippi. It's a group of believers that... God did an amazing work in Paul in order to get him to them and for Paul to have a relationship with them. In this book, he is writing a letter to them, letting them know his joy in them and his joy in Jesus and his love for them. Paul and the church at Philippi have a deep love for one another. Paul and his team, he had Silas, Timothy, Luke, on some of his others. He had other people with him as well. And they were in Troas when God gave him a vision of a man calling for help in a place called Macedonia. This was about A.D. 50 during what many people call Paul's second missionary journey. So Paul was in a place of Troas, and there God gave him a vision of a man calling and asking for help and asking for Paul. And Paul believed that this was God calling Paul to go to Macedonia. And that's what we preached about in Acts 16. That was in January, actually, of last year. 
In obedience to this vision, Paul brought the gospel to Macedonia and to what we would now consider Europe. Thankfully, he listened to the the vision that God had given him, and he went there, and God used him in order to preach the gospel and establish churches, not just in Philippi. But Philippi was the first place he went to in Macedonia. The first place that Paul went to in this Grecian area and to bring the gospel to Europe, Philippi was the first place. The first people God led Paul to was a small group of Jewish worshipers in Philippi. It was interesting where they worshipped. They worshipped by a riverside and it was women that were together praying. Probably that means that there was less than 10 Jewish males in the entire city. The city wasn't huge, but it was probably about 10,000 people in this city. It was a little copy of Rome, a little city that was very affluent. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. But Philippi was a privileged city. But there would be a, typically there would be a synagogue, a Jewish synagogue, if they had at least 10 Jewish males in the city. So it's probable that there was not a synagogue and that there was less than 10 Jewish males, but we don't know for sure. What we do know is that there was a group of Jewish God-fearing women meeting by Riverside on the Sabbath for worship. And they're the people that God led Paul to. Now it's interesting because the vision that Paul had was of a man calling. I don't know. You know, some of Paul's writings, you might wonder, would he not have gone if it was a woman calling? I'm just joking. (laughs) But God used a man and and he called and followed what the man said. And then the Bible doesn't even talk about him coming to that man, except for maybe the Philippian jailer. But what we do see is he came to a group of women that were praying and worshiping, probably on the Sabbath. The first of those to believe the gospel and become a follower of Christ was a wealthy entrepreneurial woman named Lydia. And she was from Thyatira. That's also interesting because she wasn't from this place. So whatever God did in her life, but God worked in her life to bring her from Thyatira to Philippi. And then God worked in Paul's life to bring Paul and Timothy and those with him and Silas to Philippi. Paul preached the gospel. She and her household believed. Others believed as well and began following. And then not long after that, while they were meeting to go pray, you had this situation where a, uh, a woman was being used by people in the community there to do fortune telling, and they were making a lot of money off of her. And she began crying out, saying, you know, Jesus' name, and just starting to bother Paul. And Paul ended up turning around, and she was creating a a bit of a ruckus. He finally called around and cast the demon out of her. If you remember, we talked about that before. But this caused chaos for Paul, because the people there that were making money off of her fortune-telling were no longer going to be making money off of her ability to use demonic influence to be able to know what other people were going on in their life and to be able to fortune-tell for them. And so now they were losing a means of income because Paul cast a demon out of her. So because of this, they were told that they were creating trouble in the city and they ended up being imprisoned. So Paul and Silas were imprisoned for troubling the city after commanding a demon out of this woman. And Paul is, while in prison, he ends up being miraculously brought out of prison. And then he 
gives the gospel to the Philippian jailer. The, the jailer believes on Christ and God uses all of this to bring the gospel to the people that he wanted them to be able to receive this gospel. And God used Paul in all of these circumstances. Paul doesn't understand it all. And those traveling with Paul didn't understand it. You know, those traveling with Paul surely expected going from one place to another, not to just out of nowhere change plans. And that's exactly what they did. Paul was probably going to go a little bit further south, and that's what he wanted to do before he went on to Macedonia. But the Holy Spirit forbid him from going there, and instead he gets called to go to a whole other place that he didn't expect. Paul is able to visit these believers at least one or two more times and help establish them in the faith and help organize the church. We see just reading in the book of Philippians, we're going to look at this in just a moment, but we see that the church had some level of order, some level of structure, organization as a church. But that took time. Paul loved them and visited them, and sometimes in short as he was traveling through, just to make sure he'd stop by. That was his common practice. He continually not only preached the gospel to people, but then came back and affirmed their faith and worked with them and taught them and then helped them organize and helped them get leadership in the church and structure in the church. And that's what Paul did with them. And so he visited them several times and the church became committed supporters of Paul and his ministry. They went on to, as he went on to preach the gospel to other people in obedience to Christ, they were supporters of Paul. They supported him in prayer. They supported him in finances. They sent money for him to help him be able to do his work. And a lot of this letter is Paul saying, thank you for that support. And they even sent people. They sent Epaphroditus to him to help minister to Paul when Paul was in need. Epaphroditus got sick during that. And part of this letter, Paul is writing and talking about that, explaining why he was with him so long. So this letter is very endearing because Paul is thanking this group of people that God led him to go be with and give the gospel to and then help form and establish into a church. And then God worked in his life for him to, while he worked with them, to develop such a relationship that they helped him continue on in the faith. And Paul loved them. He was loved by them and they loved him. Over and over again, you see in this book of the Bible, Joy because of the joy that they had together. The letter might be called a missionary letter today, as Paul writes to supporting church of his gratitude, his welfare, and of the fruit of the ministry. He describes all of those. I'm not saying it is a missionary letter, but some people might would call it something like that, as Paul is writing to them. But it is more than that, because here, Paul is not just writing of what God is doing in his ministry, but he also is instructing his children in the faith and encouraging them. He writes encouraging words. He writes instructive words to them. He's not just writing to a supporting church. He is writing to believers, children in the faith, and he is encouraging them to be faithful in Christ. The themes in this letter include joy, as I said before. It also includes gospel fellowship a fellowship in the gospel. And that fellowship, which we'll talk more about next week, but that fellowship is not just sitting around and drinking a cup of coffee, which is that, that may happen, or just sitting back talking, but it is a commonality in the gospel. It is coming together and finding your commonplace in the gospel. And we see that throughout this book. 
we also see a theme of knowing and being in Christ. We see a theme throughout this book of knowing Christ and being in Christ. As a matter of fact, as you get further into it, Paul says that that's really the ultimate goal of the gospel itself, of salvation, is that we know Christ, is that we know Him. God's goal of salvation is not to fix all my things in my life that I have going on right here. I'm just passing through, and that's something as we get further in the message today, we see that Paul emphasizes in this book with these people that are at Philippi that they are citizens of heaven. They were not citizens of earth. This is, this is our pilgrimage as we go through it. But our final place is in heaven with God, and we are with Him and in Christ. And so our salvation is ultimately about knowing Jesus Christ. Today I want to start with just the first two verses. And I want to look at four different things in these verses and just take some time to better understand this book as we get into it. First of all, we'll see the book's authors and their attitudes. These are the four things, and we'll go through this, and I'll place them on the screen so that way you can kind of digest a little bit more. But first of all, we're going to see the book's authors and their attitudes in these first couple verses. Secondly, we'll see the audience of the book and their applications. How do they work together? What is their order? What are their functions? How do they work together? Thirdly, we'll look at the area and its affluence. I want us to consider the area and its affluence. And then fourthly, we'll look at the appeal Paul gives, the appeal and its affection, his affectionate appeal that he gives to the people. So let's jump in here and look at first the authors and their attitudes. The Bible says, Paul and Timotheus. First, I just want to look at Paul for just a second. Paul was a former persecutor of the church of Christ a former persecutor of the church of Christ. He was a convert of Christ. Do you remember that in Romans 9 as we read about Jesus meeting Paul on the Damascus Road? Jesus was a convert of Christ. Jesus came to him and appeared before him and he said, why are, why are you kicking against the pricks? Why are you kicking against what I'm doing here? Paul was zealous he was zealous for his faith. He was becoming a Jewish religious leader. And as a Jewish religious leader that he was aspiring to be, he was so zealous, he believed that this way, they called it, of following Christ was heretical. And it was a blot on the Jewish people. And it was going to disrupt things. And it was going to disrupt things not only with the Jews, but also their relationship with Rome. Paul was a former persecutor but he became a convert of Christ and became a sold-out follower of Christ. It's interesting in Acts chapter 13 where the whole message pivots and goes to Paul and God working with Paul. And instead of Jerusalem and Peter, we see Paul and Antioch. And we see all these missionary journeys and how the, the attention changes as God uses this special servant in his hand named Paul. To preach the gospel to people, he didn't know. But he did it because of the attitude that he had that I'll share in just a moment. 
willing to leave what he had and leave his vocation and leave his life plans and choose to do that because he was a sold-out follower and he had the attitude that we'll look at. He was a spiritual father to these people. He had preached the gospel to them and many of them came to Christ through his preaching. He was a benefactor of their prayers, their love, their finances, and their helpers, as we looked at earlier. Secondly, we not only see Paul, but we see Timotheus or Timothy. Timothy was probably a secretary for this book for Paul. May not have been, but I think probably Timothy might have been writing as Paul was dictating. It may not have been, but Paul included Timothy as he introduced themselves as writers to the book. Paul was the author. It's possible Timothy was writing. What we do know about Timothy is that he was a disciple of Paul. He was a student of Paul. He was a, he was a learner of Paul. He was a companion of Paul. You know when you travel, you ever been on journeys with people? When you're on journeys with people, and when you go through hard times and struggles and difficulties, you just develop a camaraderie, a companionship that is deep. We also see that Timothy was a friend of Paul. Hey, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how sold out you are for Christ. It doesn't matter how much faith you have in him. Everybody needs some friends in the ministry. Amen. Everyone needs godly friends in life. Amen. It's hard to walk down any path that God gives you without having some people that you trust as friends. Everybody needs friends as we go through life in the ministry together. And Paul was given not just Timothy, but other people as well that would be friends together in the ministry with Paul. There are times when we go through doubts, struggles, difficulties in the Christian life, whether it be health disruptions, financial disruptions, life decisions, challenges, enemies, attacks, whatever it might be, and friends on the journey. If you recall, when I preached through when, they were, when Paul was going through the storm in the book of Acts as well, that God had given him friends on that journey, and they were part of how they got through that journey and landed that ship. Timothy was also a pastor in Ephesus. He was a substantive man that Paul had with him. What a blessing to have someone like Timothy with him. And these people knew Timothy. They had also a love and a care for Timothy as he was a companion of Paul. But I want us to notice the attitude of these authors Paul being the author, Timothy being his companion, possibly the scribe, the writer, as Paul was dictating. Notice with me the attitude of being a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ. We've looked at this just recently. Notice it says, Paul and Timotheus, the what? Servants of who? Jesus Christ. The servants of Jesus Christ. And many of Paul's other epistles, he introduced himself as apostle. Sometimes he established his authority with the people before he wrote, especially if he had to write about something that was difficult or challenging, or he had to be very corrective with them. But not here. Paul did not have to establish his authority with these people. 
He wrote to them and just said, we're servants. He didn't have to say, I'm I'm an apostle. And so you need to listen to what I'm saying. He just wrote as a servant. This attitude showed a couple things. And I'll just point out, I mean, you could take several applications from it. But first of all, I believe it pointed out that Paul was writing to people that were trusting dear friends. They were trusting dear friends. You don't have to build yourself up positionally before you write to someone when someone is a dear friend and they trust. You ever talk with people that you actually have a trusting relationship with? And when you talk, you just talk. You don't have to position it. You don't have to tailor it. You don't have to prepare it. You just talk. Now I was with my family over the holidays. And when I was with my family, just sitting around talking, that's, it's fun. Because when you talk with family that are friends and uh, there's, there's pretty much no wall, no, there's just complete transparency. They know me. I know them. And when you have that trust, you don't have to really build and position that up. If I had to pick one attribute both necessary for teams to function, and many writers write about this as well, and for leaders to lead, it might would be trust. I can't say for sure. But if I had to choose one attribute of being able to work together with a team or be able to lead someone that is a part of your team, it is having trust. Now, trust is not unaccountability and not challenging. Trust is actually having enough trust to provide accountability. Trust is having enough trust to where if I disagree with my friend or my brother or my influencer, I have enough trust, we have enough trust, where I don't hold it in close to my chest, I bring it right on out on the table and I just put it out there and I talk about it with them. Once in a while, the team at FBMI where I serve at Fundamental Baptist Missions International would be caught off guard when sometimes with the trust that my boss, Mark Bushy, and I would have. We had a lot of trust between each other. And that's a lot of why we function well. And we have so much trust to where last year I finished writing his job description and mine and everyone in the team. But we had enough trust to do that. But sometimes we would meet with everyone and He might say something or I might say something and I would rebuttal what he's saying tactfully, but I would say, I don't know about that, Brother Bushy. And I would go back and forth in the team with it and it hadn't been yet developed as part of the culture of the team that you do that. Now, we were getting some converts because I believe in it. I believe in trust. You don't have a healthy team without it. And so uh, we had some people that were converting over to that and believing it and they were okay with it. But I could see the eyes of some people as I would talk. Once in a while, if, if we're talking about what we're going to do, and Brother Bushy says, oh, I think we should do this. And I go, oh, I don't know about that, Brother Bushy. And we talk back and forth about it. And eventually we figured out we probably needed to talk a little bit more in our office together before we talked with the whole team. And so we started doing that. But that's really a healthy team has that ability to talk about things with each other. An unhealthy team holds things back, and they all talk within their micro-teams in a team. So you got a micro-team here, you got a micro-team here, a micro-team, micro-team. And how in the world do you rally a team together if everyone's a micro-team? Everyone likes to talk the meetings after the meetings people talk about. 
You meet and you all talk about it and then everyone's quiet. Any questions? No, nope, no questions, no questions. And then after the meeting, everybody go meet. And then these two talk and these ones talk and these ones talk. That is one of the most unhealthy things for a team and a church. The healthiest thing is for all of us while we're in unity to just hash things out and figure them out and talk them through. Paul had trusting friends, trusting enough for him to say, I'm just a servant, servant of Jesus Christ. And the way he wrote to them was just friendship, love, a trusting relationship. He stayed in some of their homes. Lydia had offered her belongings, her wealth, her home to these people. They had a trust. It is simply difficult to reach honesty and decisiveness when there is lack of trust. It is difficult to teach and lead without trust. Again, this is not a blind trust. I don't agree with that. I like to challenge questions and thoughts and direction and ideas. But that in and of itself is trust. Because if I have no trust, I'm not going to challenge you. I'm just going to leave. But if I trust you, I'm going to trust you enough to talk face to face. I'm going to trust you enough for us to go back and forth. And when there is not a willingness to do that, there is division. There is unknown division that eventually comes out. And there's maybe a thought of unity, but it is deceitful. It is not truly there. Not, Not an intentional deceit. It is just simply not there. They were trusting, dear friends. But also, Paul and Timothy knew they were owned by Christ. And I believe that's the greatest reason why he called himself a slave to Christ, a servant of Christ. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ. Paul and Timothy knew they were owned by Jesus. They went from slaves to sin to slaves to Christ. Consider Romans chapter 6, verse 22 that Paul writes about. And he says, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Paul was glad that they were among friends, but he was also glad that he is a servant of Christ, owned by Christ and owned by no one else, but owned by him. And Paul modeled the humility that he would go on to instruct in this letter. As we read further in this letter, Paul talks about humility and having a mindset of Christ and demonstrated how Christ humbled himself from heaven to earth and became the God-man and the servant of all. And he says, and you and I need to have that same mindset of humility. Paul says, Paul and Timothy, the servants, the humble servants, this was their attitude. Their attitude is they were among trusting friends and their attitude is they were owned by Jesus Christ. Following Christ. Secondly, we not only see here the authors and their attitudes, but I like us to see the audience and their applications. The audience and their applications. And we see three different sub-audiences within one audience. As he's writing to a church of Philippi, we see three different audiences in here. The first one is saints. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ to all the what? Saints. Do you see that there? To all the saints in Christ Jesus. Paul commonly addressed believers as saints. That's a term that gets used incorrectly. Some churches 
I'm sure well-meaning people, some, some not, but we'll use the term saints as though it's some special class of Christians, that someone arrived to sainthood. But the Bible teaches very clearly over and over again of believers being called saints. Saints are holy ones, set apart from the world for God. That's what a saint is. If you and I have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, if we have repented and turned to God, believing on Jesus Christ as our Savior, you and I are called saints. Amen. I'm Saint John. You're a saint. That doesn't mean you're a higher class of a, of, of a Christian. It just means you are a Christian. And God's the one that calls you and I saints, not each other. That's why I don't go around and say, Saint so-and-so. Hey, Saint Aura, you'd like that, wouldn't you? But we don't do that. But God calls those saints, and Paul did call them saints. Holy ones set apart from the world for God. God's special purchased possession purchased by Christ. And notice he says, saints in Christ. The only way you and I can be a saint is if we're in Christ. In a religion doesn't work. In a church doesn't work. In a lifestyle change doesn't work. In Christ. So the audience included saints. These are the believers in the church. They've been saved. And we believe that a church is composed Number one of, of saints, of believers that have been saved in Christ and have followed the Lord in believers' baptism. Baptism doesn't save. It doesn't make you a saint. Baptism is an outward expression of a desire to show that you're a saint, that you have been baptized in Jesus Christ, that you have been saved by the blood and by the death, burial, and resurrection. You have also the resurrection in Christ. It is an outward expression of a commitment to say, I want to die to my old life and my old purpose and to sin, and I want to live in newness of life and walk in Christ. That's what baptism is. And a church following the biblical model laid out in scriptures is a church of baptized believers that have come together to follow Christ. Practice the ordinances he gives us. Protect the faith. Secondly, we not only see saints, but we see bishops. Bishops or overseers. It says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, comma, with the bishops or overseers. The word bishop there is used interchangeably in different passages of the Bible. I'm going to show you a few, but try not to go too many. But I'm going to do a little bit of teaching. It's the same as elders and pastors or shepherds. There's leadership of a church, and leadership of a church is bishops, elders, pastors, slash shepherd, pastor, shepherd, pretty much the same thing. Those three words are the same position. They're just different terms that are used for them and different roles that they do together. Bishop is not a pastor, say, of pastors. Sometimes someone would say, well, I'm bishop so-and-so because I'm not just a pastor of one church. I'm a pastor of five churches, so I'm called bishop so-and-so. Uh, no, no, no. A bishop is just another title used for someone who is a pastor or an elder in one church, not over many churches. Christ is the head of the church, and local churches 
are led under leadership of bishops, pastors in the church, and they have no other human leadership above them but Christ. That helps prevent. Now, there are churches that are part of associations. There are churches that are part of denominations. We're not. We're a local church that is accountable to our our belief, our statement of faith, and Christ is our head, and our authority is the scriptures. So we don't have bishops that are over a church. Paul is writing to the bishops, the deacons, the saints in this one local church. Notice even it's plural there. I believe the best pattern for a church is to have a pastoral team that work together. You can use whatever term, elder, bishop, pastor, shepherd. I've heard some call it shepherding teams, whatever you want to call it. I think for understanding's sake, pastor is pretty common. Our church is one pastor. But I believe that it's most healthy when a church has a pastoral team as a church grows. Because that allows accountability within that team to talk about membership and talk about doctrine and talk about direction and defend the faith together and hold one another accountable in their leadership for the church. Commonly, churches that even have a pastoral team have a senior pastor, someone that preaches the predominant amount of time. And you see in the book of Revelation where it seems like an individual pastor was addressed. And I think that's a common, but a team is always better. I love working with a team that has trust. You already heard me on that earlier. But I love working with a team. And that Paul was addressing this team of bishops and overseers. The early church began organizing this way. It was possibly just following Jewish patterns in the area. You can look up in the Old Testament and you're going to find pastors or shepherds in the Old Testament. And you're going to find elders in the Old Testament. And so some of it was kind of the terms. I don't really care so much about the term. It's the role. Those terms were was just simply their language. It's what they used. They called someone an elder. They called someone a shepherd. But they had leaders. Paul specifically addresses these church leaders along with the saints and deacons. I want to take a few minutes and just fly through a few verses of the Bible. It'll be a little bit longer today. It's going to be a crazy long, okay? But I'm going to go about another 10 minutes, all right? I'm just going to go through a few verses, and I want us to just walk through these a little bit and see bishops or pastors or elders. Say bishop. Bishop. Say elder. Elder. Say pastor. Pastor. Okay? Those three are the same thing. Okay? There are different roles. Bishop is, is the role of a pastor that oversees the direction and uh, the programs and things that are going on in the church, the finances. And elder is the one that's teaching and uh, discipling and counseling. And that's kind of the role, the thought, the teacher. And we see the pastor, shepherd, is the example. And uh, one that gives themselves to hospitality, spends time with the sheep. So three different pictures. I consider those my three roles as a pastor is doing those things. It's bishoping, it's shepherding, and it's teaching eldering. So let's look at some verses here in the Bible about this so we can see it in Acts 14, 23. And when they had ordained them, elders, plural, in every singular church. So they had a, they had a pastoral team, okay? And prayed with fasting. They commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. We see this is Acts 14. This is when Paul is doing his missionary journeys early on. And when he is establishing, he's preaching the gospel, and then he's organizing churches. What's he doing? He is 
ordaining or appointing is what that means. He's appointing elders or an elder team or pastor team for a church to help a church be able to have leadership. Now there's qualifications for those, and we'll get to those in a little bit. Next, Acts 20, 17, and from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the what? Elders of the church. These are the pastors of the church. And so he called them from Ephesus. Ephesus was a good, strong church, and Paul wanted to spend time with them. And here you actually see one of Paul's few sermons to believers. Usually you get to read, I think it's his only one actually, you get to read of his sermons that he preaches to the lost many times. But this time he's preaching to believers, and who are they? Elders. They're leaders of the church of Ephesus. And they actually go out of the way to meet with him. He has a little bit of time to meet in a port. And so he pulls over on that port. They travel to go meet with him. And he sits down. He spends time with them and teaches and instructs these leaders. Why? So that these leaders can then go instruct the church of Ephesus. Paul didn't have time to go to the church of Ephesus. And he didn't need to. Because the church was organized in such a way where Paul, Paul wasn't overseeing them. He wasn't a bishop to them. He was an apostle. He was going forth as a set one, proclaiming the gospel, establishing churches, and continuing to be a mentor to these people. Next, Acts 20, 28. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers or bishops to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. So we see the ownership of the church. God owns the church, not a shepherd, not a bishop, not a pastor. Christ owns the church. We see the role of the bishop, the overseers. It's for them to give oversight, direction, financial stewardship, accountable to the membership by giving that direction and to feed the flock. Primary role, and as we look at the qualifications of a pastor or a bishop, primary role is to be able to teach, to feed the flock. Next, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 gives us qualifications of a bishop, of a pastor. This is, I believe that someone knows that they should be pastoring if they have four things here. So four things, ready? First of all is a desire. This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. The desire is not a position. If someone desires a position, someone has a wrong desire. It's an ambition. It's something that they're, they're just trying to get. If it's a desire for work, it's a burning inside the heart of a believer that says, I love to labor in the scriptures. And I love to teach the scriptures. And I love to pray. And I love to shepherd. And I love to give hospitality. And I love to evangelize. And I love to disciple. I just love doing these things. I like making disciples. I like preaching the gospel to someone who doesn't know Christ. I like discipling someone who has believed on Christ and helping them get baptized and helping them grow in the faith. It's my joy. It's my desire. Someone that is to be a pastor or one of the pastors within a church it ought to be someone that has a desire, a burning in their heart that says, I love doing these things. Secondly, they ought to have gifts that go along with that desire. Those gifts have to be developed. It takes time. But the church ought to be looking to see, does this person have gifting? So they ought to be tested. They ought not be a novice. They ought to have times where they have to be tried and to see, does this person have the gifts necessary? Do they pray? 
Do they teach? Do they have disciples? Do they see spiritual fruit in their life? And we need to see these kind of things in them. And thirdly, not only do they need to believe they have the gifts and the calling, but we need, thirdly, church affirmation. Churches and other pastors need to affirm that they say, I can tell you have that desire for the work, not, not the position, the office, and I believe you have the gifts. And if a pastor says, nah, I know you got the desire, that's all good, but you, you don't got the gifts. I don't believe you have the calling yet. Let's try you out a little bit longer. Let's go give you some work to do and go minister, help clean the church, help serve, visit people, share the gospel, disciple someone. I want to see these things in you. And then fourthly, you have the qualifications. These are the character qualifications. These aren't gifts. These are, you got to be this kind of person. If you're not this kind of person, shouldn't be pastoring a church because you're going to hurt the church. I'd rather have someone with less giftedness and more of this than to have someone that has great giftedness in ability to teach or whatever and not have this. So let's look through this. Okay, ready? Verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless. That doesn't mean they don't sin, but it just simply means that they ought to have a blamelessness. They ought, ought to have a good name in the church and outside of the church. They ought to be a husband of one wife or a one-woman man. I don't believe that that means that they couldn't have ever been divorced. I don't believe that that means that they have to be married. I believe that that's specifically referring to that they are faithful to one woman and that they are pure. I believe that someone could be disqualified if they had a bad scenario of a previous marriage. They could be disqualified because that could affect the blamelessness. If you had a bad situation in the marriage in the past, it could be hard for other people in the church to follow the pastor to say, uh, you know, develop your home this way. Okay? So there, I don't believe there's a hard line there. I believe just simply there, all of this is painting a characteristic of a pastor so they're blameless, husband of one wife, a one-woman man is in the Greek, vigilant, that they are vigilant towards this purpose and they are given to this purpose. They are not lazy about it. They take it seriously. They're sober. They are <clears throat> being sober. They're not just goofing off. Life is uh, in Christ and the gospel and the protection of the church, the doctrine of the church isn't like some side hobby thing or so, some way to try to make some money. No, no, no. It is their calling. They have good behavior. Okay, I know that seems pretty obvious, but I've seen pastors not of good behavior and just not conducting themselves in a way where you could say, I'd like to follow that person. Also, we see Given to hospitality. Hospitality is opening yourself to people. It's visiting their homes, and it's them visiting your home. It's talking with one another. It's getting to know one another. It's visiting. It's caring. Apt to teach is able to teach. Having that ability to be able to teach. Teaching is not just ability to speak. It's an ability to learn. It's ability to organize. It's ability to Teach to the point of understanding. Next verse there, verse 3, not given to wine. So they're, they're not given to alcohol. They're not given to drunkenness. They're not given to that lifestyle. They need to be an example. They need 
people to be able to look at them and say, this person is not only sober-minded, but they are also careful to be a good example and to not be given to drunkenness and not to wine. Not a striker. They're not a person that gets in fights. And we see brawler in just a little bit here as well. Not greedy, a filthy lucre. Money. Money's not evil. But greedy and driven towards just making money and driven towards it as their purpose. If that's their purpose, then they're going to go off course. They're going to embezzle. They're going to do wrong things. They're going to forsake the flock of God. And so they can't be given to filthy lucre. Patient. Pastoring, bishoping takes a lot of patience. You preach the Bible with people and people go, amen, and they don't do it. You say, no. Yep. I do it too. You learn things and it just takes time to apply them. You have to be patient with people. You can't force people to grow. And we have to be patient enough to know, man, I know where I have needed people to be patient with me. And so I'm going to be patient with them. Pastors need to be patient. And if they're, not, if they're an impatient person, especially with people, it's funny. I know people draw some hard lines on the divorce thing. But you'll bring on someone as a pastor that's impatient with people and a driver, a prodder, and a pusher instead of a servant leader. Man, I'll take a divorce guy that's, that's patient, that loves Christ, that's apt to teach. Put it all together here. We also see not a brawler, not one that fights and that is given to that. Not one that's given into constantly. There's some people that are like uh, psychological antagonists. It's like, you've got to argue about this. Like, no, let's, let's not be given to that. Whether it be physical, whether it be emotional, whether it be psychological, let's just not be brawlers, not covetous, believing that things that other people have belong to you. Now, you got to have that. We need to be, as Paul talked about, content in Christ. One that ruleth well his own house and having his children in subjection with all gravity. So this is one that has an example of how to lead his family in the complementary way, as I believe the Bible teaches, where husbands and wives are equal in value before God and each other. Martha and I are equal, but we complement each other in our role in our home. And so Martha helps me lead the home. I don't dictate the home. I don't step on Martha. But she knows that I believe I'm accountable to God for helping lead the home, providing for the home. I don't have to fight for that. I have a wonderful wife and children and rule the home. But that's important to have that kind of example. Next, verse 5, For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how should he take care of the church of God? So there's just a little in parenthesis. Hey, if, if he's not going to rule his house well, he's not going to rule the house of God. Next verse there, verse 6. Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. A novice is one that doesn't have the experience necessary for this. And because of that, typically someone that's a novice, they and I've done it in my life, you want to try so hard to prove yourself to you and to others that it becomes pride. And it may not be a pride that it looks like, well, that's a prideful person, but it's pride. More concerned about how you're performing and getting to the point of what you need to be than just serving. And that's natural for novices. 
Just watch around as people are growing into positions and places and roles of life that young you got to. And if someone doesn't have that kind of burning in their heart, I, I'm concerned for that. Because they're apathetic, just sitting back, just doing whatever. And they need to have that experience where while, you know, there's people that are like just energetic and ready to just go, go, go. And uh, I've heard it said before by business leaders that you always want to keep some newbies on your team. Some new people, they got to prove themselves because, I mean, they're excited. They're ready to go. But it's always funny. You always get the person that's been around, you know, 20 years at your job, right? And they're like, you know, relax, kid. (laughs) Sit back, you know. You get that in the mill probably, right? People have been there 20, 30 years. Yeah, USG, I'm sure you have that, right? 40. Like, slow down, kid. It's all right. They're running, you know, you kind of picture that kid that's running at you trying to, you know, swing and hit, fooling around with dad. And you just put your hand out and hold their forehead. And they're just like, going, 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 going crazy. And it's like, they got all this energy. They don't know what to do with it. And sometimes the novice can be that way. And it's good. Novices is good for discipleship. Because someone that's not excited about it and energetic, they're not going to be a good student. Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without, which are without, lest he fall into approach and snare of the devil. So he also needs to have a good report with people outside of the church, not only those that are in the church. Very briefly, a few other verses. I won't go over any other qualifications, but James 5, verse 14 reads, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. The elders which are among you, I exhort or lift up, who am also an elder, Peter's writing, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, so also an apostle, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. What does he tell them to do? Verse 2, feed the flock of God, which is among you. Taking the oversight, bishoping thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. So he calls him an elder. He tells him, feed the flock. He calls them, tells them to give oversight. That's why those words are not as important. Those are just active words. Those are what we're supposed to be doing, pastoring. Notice verse 3. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. So he says, don't give oversight in a way where you're lording, but rather be an example for the people to follow. A good pastor isn't going around pushing people, but rather goes out in front and says, hey, come on. Lead your family this way. Walk with Christ this way. Steward your finances this way. Share the gospel this way. Walk with God this way. Love brothers and sisters with Christ this way. Be patient this way. They're saying, come follow me as I follow Christ. They're not lifting themselves up, but they are out in front saying, hey, I just want to give you an example. I'm not a great example, not a perfect example. Striving to be, striving to follow Christ, but I I do want to give you an example free to follow, and bishops, pastors give examples to the church. And then verse 4, when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Shepherds, pastors, bishops, the role is very important. The office ought to be honored and lifted up because it is one where the pastor ought to be accountable to the chief shepherd. And we'll answer to him one day on how they pastor and lead the flock. It's a heavy burden. It ought to be. It can't be taken lightly. 
But I don't take it lightly. Because though we are a small flock, this flock is as important to the chief shepherd Christ as any other flock. And so we ought to lead with accountability to Christ for his flock. Not my flock, not anyone else's flock, his flock. Last verse I want you to see is in 1 Timothy 5. Verses 17 through 20. I told you I would take some time to talk through this, but I feel like we, I believe we need this. 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. This is talking about financial support. Same way when the Bible talks about honoring your mother and your father. And so to honor your mother and father is to help them financially. It's not talking about obeying your mother and father all your life. It's to give them worth. And if they need Help them out. This is talking about counting elders that rule well worthy of financial support, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine, those that are primary teachers in the church. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his hire. In other words, if you have an ox going through the field and the ox is pulling the plow and they're putting the corn down, don't put the muzzle on it and keep it from being able to uh, bend down and eat some of the corn grains. Take it off and let it eat of the corn grains because it's plowing for you. Just go ahead and let it, let him do it. And Paul talks about living of the gospel. It is not something that every church does. I know so many pastors as myself that are bivocational and that work predominantly outside of the church so that they can pastor. But I would say that it ought to be the goal and desire of every church and members to help the church grow together to the point to where the pastor can live of the gospel. Live of the gospel. Because Paul talks about that. It produces a distractedness. It removes of the distractions. Allowing the pastor to, to focus on the scriptures, laboring the scriptures and in prayer. It's a good biblical model and example. It's not a must. There are many churches. I'm one of many. My dad, they planted a church 18 years ago in Pennsylvania, and the church has been able to support them all those years. After about six months, the church has been able to do that, and I praise the Lord for that. He went there full-time, raised some support that tapered off, and just full-time and did that. That's not something I've chosen to do. My predominant work has been the missions agency where I serve. But that's what he went to go do. And uh, even right now, just because they need it a little bit, he's driving a bus. First time he's done anything like that in a lot of years, but he's driving a school bus. And it's normal. I get that. And many people in society work multiple jobs. It's, it's a typical thing. But I want to say to the church that we ought to pray that God would help the church, get the point where the church could help the pastors, or at least the main teaching pastors, be able to live of the gospel. It's something to pray for and to care about. I've never asked for it, never desired it for me, for this church. I've always wanted to be able to work, and God has provided for Martha and I. I mean, I've done everything from, while working to one other main job, 40 hours a week, throw papers, getting up at, you know, 1.45 in the morning, go throw papers, and then go to your full-day job, and then prepare for pastoring in the evenings. And so for 12 years, I've been tri-vocational and working a minimum of 65 hours a week, I would say. It's seven days a week. But my family never gets cheated. We have chunks of time that we spend time together. I would like to give them more. But I think if you ask them, none of them would say that they're cheated. 
because I try to make that a focus. And sometimes other things fall out because of it, but that's part of a life. This is not whining or complaining here. I'm trying to give a reality and lift your eyes just a little bit and ask you, would you pray for the church? That the church could do this, but then also not only can churches give them financial support so that way they're not muzzling the ox, they tread the corn, but also verse 19 and 20, look at this. He goes on to say, against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. So it says to have a process if an elder does something wrong to hold them accountable, but have a process. But notice in verse 20, them that sin, so if they do something that disqualifies them of pastoring, or if they do something that is damaging to the church, maybe not even disqualification, but it's damaging to the church. It's something that is public knowledge. It's something that needs to be addressed. Rebuke before all that others also may fear. And we see here the importance of uh, churches need to have a measure of church discipline within the church to help the, keep the church functioning well. I've been studying about that, trying to learn about that, but not where you're trying to tell people what to do with everything in their life. But mostly it's a form of discipleship where we sit down with one another and talk with one another and help each other, but then the church helps with the process. But I would say that pastors, if someone is in leadership, they have higher responsibility, higher accountability. Your pastor here, if I, if you wonder like, is he doing something he shouldn't be doing? Is, is his heart not right? Is it morals not right? Is, is there something going on? You ought to address that. You ought to address it directly with your pastor. Uh, you ought to address it with the deacons because we don't have a pastoral team. So at least address it with the deacons and then address it with your pastor. But that's important. Worst thing a church can do for a pastor is to not give them accountability. I've seen pastors damage churches and hurt the name of Christ and hurt their own selves and their family. Because when they're starting to go off, because all of us, you know, life is like you're driving a car and you steer a little bit here, steer a little bit here, and you can go off a little bit one way or the other. And they start going off a little bit, little way and people say, well, they're the pastor. They, they must be right. And they go off a little bit more. Oh, well, they must be right. No, no. Positions don't make you right. Following Christ is vital for everyone in the church. Pastor, the deacons, the members. And so if, sure, aspire and pray that the church is able to help support the pastors who can live with the gospel and then hold the pastors accountable, whether or not you can do that for the sake of the pastor, the sake of the church. The last group we see here is deacons, and I can't take time to teach through it because we're going to have to bring it to a close. But we see the deacons, diakonos, which is servant. That's what it means. Some people use the terms deacon boards. Some churches use the terms elder boards. I don't like to use board for any of them. I don't see it in the Bible. I see that you have pastors, elders, whatever you want to call them. You have deacons, but not so much a board that's more of a, a secular modification into the church where you have this board that's a governing board that aren't given to teach, that don't know doctrine, that are, that are this board. Rather, preferably a church as pastors, that have been elected by the church, affirmed by the church, and those pastors are leading the church. And then you have deacons that are servants to the church and servants in the church that are helping administrate for the church. Marvin and Malachi, the Lord has gifted us with very good deacons in our church. They help administrate things for the church. They don't set the doctrine 
I do, because we don't have a pastoral team, we don't have other pastors, I do work with them on, how, on have, giving me at least a team to recommend things to the church because that's how we function at this time until the church would grow. But the deacons help administrate. They come in and they meet uh, people that, uh, vendors, when they need to come in and work on the property and they schedule the, the, the grass to be cut and they count the offerings and they help with the bookkeeping and they work with the accountant and all these things that our church needs to help so that way pastors can give themselves to scripture and to prayer. The next I can't talk about is the Philippi, the place. But really, Paul just wanted them to know they were citizens, not just of Philippi, not just of Rome. There's things I could say about the place. It's, it's a unique place, but I don't have time to say them. But I do want to end with the appeal and its affection. The appeal is appeal to God for the saints, the bishops, and the deacons to have grace and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The appeal was that God would give them what the Greeks want, grace, and what the Hebrews wanted, peace. That's how they would greet one another. The Greeks would tend to greet with grace, grace to you, charis. The Jews would shalom, peace. He said, I want God to give you grace and peace. The qualities that they both want in their life are now available in Christ. And notice he named God the Father, Not only were they slaves, but they were sons. From God our Father and for the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, we are adopted children of God. We're not just servants of God alone. We're adopted. We're children. That's awesome. And then lastly, notice he says, the Lord Jesus Christ. Two persons of the Godhead, the triune God, Jesus is exalted and glorified as he ought to be throughout this book. Lord is master, or even Jehovah in the Old Testament. Jesus is God as our Savior. Christ is, in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, Messiah. You didn't just have Jesus listed here. You didn't even have just Jesus Christ listed here. You didn't even have Lord Jesus Christ here. You had the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout this entire book, Jesus is the center of it all. That's a lot of why I wanted to preach in this book is because I wanted us to see that we find our joy in Jesus. Ultimately, when everything else gets shaken up in your life, when things change, when you go through trials, when you go through difficulties, our joy is found in the unchanging, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Paul, Timothy, and the Church of Philippi were believers who found joy with one another in Jesus as they serve him. We saw the authors and their attitudes, the audience and their applications, the area and its affluence, which we didn't get to spend much time on, the appeal and its affection. And I want to ask these questions and we'll pray in close. Do we have attitudes of a servant of Christ, me and you? Do we consider ourselves owned by God? The best way to live the Christian life is to consider yourself owned by God. Paul could do so much because his life was not his own. He was owned by Christ. And when you're owned by Christ, you do what Christ says, even when it's hard. Secondly, are you surrendered to help our church function as a body under Christ? 
saints, bishops, deacons. The only way a church is going to be able to function the right way is if you have faithful saints, bishops, and deacons. And this church always needs that. Do we find our identity in Christ? Their identity was not to be found in being in Philippi, being affluent, being considered a Roman citizen. Their identity was to be found in the fact that they were a citizen of heaven. And then lastly, do we look for grace and peace in God, our Father, and in Jesus Christ? Or do we seek grace and peace in other ways, in other means? Let's have joy together in Jesus, and let's begin by serving Jesus. There's joy found, like Paul, in serving Jesus. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.